I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. So to finally feel recognized for your experience, I'm hoping that this conversation and the, and sharing this, which is such an incredible act of vulnerability on your behalf, does help heal. Because my guess is that you're going to have myriad of people who come out saying, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I felt too. <laughs> You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 432. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. I am feeling especially apprehensive about this particular episode, and I'm going to tell you why. (laughs) It is a conversation about shit that matters with unqualified people. One of those episodes. For those of you who might be new to the show, I haven't done one in a little while, and these are basically conversations that I have with people in my real life that are my friends. And we don't, we're not coming at this from an expert angle. These are real conversations and we're kind of working through things in real time. And for this particular episode, I had kind of like a smack me in the face moment of self-awareness. And usually when that happens, I immediately go to my best friend, Amy Smith, and talk it out with her. Amy also, you know, has been doing what I do for a very long time, and she's my best friend. She's, you know, the first person that I go to around issues such as this. And I decided that I was going to save it for the show. And as I'm walking into this conversation with her, I'm totally regretting it. I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe. It was like one of those vulnerability hangovers, you know, where you think something is a great idea, and then you're like, what? This feels way too exposed. So I I wanted to caveat the episode with a few things that you need to know, just so you better understand the episode. So again, Amy's my best friend. We just kind of jump into the conversation. There's not a real intro like I usually do. And please forgive the first approximately three minutes because I am stalling. I'll just be honest. I was so nervous and anxiety-ridden about just dealing with it at all, not even just having the conversation publicly, but just having the conversation at all. Also, there's a book that we are referring to, and when I re-listen to the episode, we I, I say it very fast, and you might not be able to hear me. The book we, we are referring to is Atlas of the Heart. It's Brene Brown's newest book. Okay, that's what we're referring to. I am also in the episode when I'm talking about, quote unquote, the things that happened to me, I am specifically referring to my divorce. So for those of you that are a little bit new to the show, in 2006, I was married previously. And uh, as my husband and I were talking about 
and planning to conceive our first child, he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. And then we divorced right after that. I had been with him for many, many, many years, and I was very close to his family. It was a very traumatic experience. Uh, and that's what I'm referring to when I'm because I kind of just dive in and and get really emotional. And speaking of emotional, after listening back to the episode, I can I can tell that I'm not sad about it. So I, I want to kind of preface that just so you know. I do break down and start crying and there's a lot of really awkward pauses that I wanted to I wanted to edit those out, but I'm like, no, let me just leave them because that's real conversations and how it works. And I I am emotional about it and you'll find out why. So I just want everybody to know I'm okay. I'm not particularly sad. It's just a very emotional topic. And I wanted to make that distinction because this is one of those like emotional intelligence type types of things where it was helpful for me to learn that about myself, that, you know, naming what is actually going on. Again, wasn't particularly sad, just sometimes we cry when we have a really vulnerable conversation with someone, when we are telling someone that we trust something that is especially difficult for us to say out loud. I hope I hope that I'm being clear about that. I just wanted it to hopefully be helpful for some of you as you might be able to relate to what I'm talking about, or even if you can just relate to breaking down and crying about something when you're not exactly sad about it, but it's just a very emotional topic. Uh, This episode is explicit. If you have any young listeners, there are some F-bombs in there because it's a real conversation. And I was in a tent. Let me explain because Amy mentions it. So she and I are on video together, uh, but of course, this episode is only audio. I set up like a fort in my office because I sh- I share a wall with my son and he was home that day and I didn't want him to hear any of the conversation so I I moved my whole operation on the other side of my office and then created like a sheet over me partly for sound and mostly to feel like I was protected. <laughs> Amy and I had a really good laugh about it. So she does mention that towards the end, or maybe I mentioned it about how we're in a tent, or rather how I'm in a tent. And lastly, there is a particular clip that I'm going to link to in the show notes. If any of you are like me, what's helpful to me as I process emotions, it's helpful for me when I see TV or movies or maybe even even a play, although I don't see live theater all that often, where something that I'm feeling is acted out by the actors. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like kind of separating myself and seeing it and and being able to see their emotions, obviously, you know, if these are great actors. And it helps me to be able to feel seen in the emotions, as well as process the emotion itself. So there's a particular scene, you guys know I'm 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 a fairly, I don't want to say I'm a huge fan, but I'm a fan of the Sex and the City series. And there is a scene from the first Sex and the City movie where Carrie is very upset with Mr. Big, as she had many times. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the show, Basically, he they have a long relationship that is dramatic, and they get married, and he gets cold feet and decides to leave her at the altar, and then he changes his mind, and they meet right at that moment where he's trying to apologize to her for standing her up um, and leaving her at the altar, and she is very upset with him. It's a very short clip. Um I can't watch it without crying. Even just like thinking about it makes my throat clench up. And it's the particular things that she says to him in that moment that just gut me in a good way. Because again, it helps me, it helps me understand everything. And that particular clip is pertinent to this episode because I always sort of wondered why that clip gutted me so much. And you'll hear why. All right. I think that's about it for setting up this show. Last thing, we have decided to have one 
retreat, one Daring Way retreat this year, and it is going to be in September. It is going to be a non-recovery-focused retreat in Asheville, North Carolina, and that is over at andreaowen.com slash retreat. Stay tuned because I'm going to do an open house, like an open Q&A over here within the next couple of months. If you're interested in going and you're not quite sure yet, you might want to talk to me and have some questions, you will be uh, able to do that. So stay tuned for that. And I guess without further ado, here is the conversation about shit that matters with unqualified people between me and my best friend, Amy Smith. I don't know how I'm feeling. I I think I'm just like questioning my entire existence. Yeah. No, I'm being dramatic. <laughs> Isn't that like existentialism? I think so. I yeah. think I'm experiencing <laughs> in it. Well, and to be fair, uh, to give a little bit of context for you and the people, I I like to batch interviews for the podcast. And I have interviewed three experts. So this is my fourth call. And I've interviewed three experts on trauma and different modalities of trauma therapy. They were all therapists. So it was all these really deep conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's always good. (laughs) It's a little bit. Oh, you mean today? Like today Today. you've had back to back. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is where my head went. I went, oh, you've discussed emotions and this book with three other PhDs or therapists. And now you just want a life coach's perspective. (laughs) No, I just want like an average Jane. Yeah. Just let's have some, the layman's perspective. (laughs) No, no, I've, I've, we talked about, I interviewed um, Elizabeth Cooperman. Um, she's a therapist and she talks a lot about like complex PTSD and like the four um, trauma responses, the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Yeah. And then I talked to a really interesting woman, Sarah Payton, who talks a lot about epigenetics. Oh, yeah. And then uh, and like ancestral healing. And then um, Britt Frank, who's always amazing. She, um, she has a book coming out. So it's just a lot of different experts. And now you. Yeah. Whatever works to help us all heal, right? Right. Yeah. I feel like there was there was a, a a lot of years where I was like, why the fuck was I born in this family? <laughs> until until I realized, like, oh, to learn how to speak up for yourself and then teach everybody that too. You mm-hmm. know, I know you and I both talked about that, about feeling othered in your yeah. family. Okay. So why don't we, I know that I have given you like no context. I have no idea what we're talking about at all, but I'm good like that. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny because like when this happened, so I had like a moment, had like an existential crisis moment, like, I don't know, a week and a half ago. And then I messaged you right away and was like, Hey, can we talk about this on the pod? So I didn't even immediately tell you what was going on, which I usually do. Right. And so, okay. That's, I think that's where I'll start is. So I was in the car and you and I both have at the Alice of the Heart book. Yes. Did you, have you listened to the unlocking? Cause I know you were saying that you were catching up on Brene's podcast, the unlocking us episodes where it was like a three-part series where her and her sisters were, yes. they were interviewing her. Okay. Yes. So I was listening to that in the car with Sydney. My daughter was in the backseat and there I am happily rolling along. <laughs> And granted, at this point, I had only gotten through the first chapter of the book, I think through chapter one, and I was listening to it, um, and I'm going to share my screen to play an excerpt of the podcast. And P.S., I was frantically researching, like, is this legal to play someone else's podcast on my show? Yeah. It is. I found out it it is. is. Yeah. As long as it's for... You can't, anyway, the long and short of it, as long as you're doing it in the context of how we're doing it. So we are going to talk about it and you can do it like for journalism purposes or, you know, critiquing and commentary and things like that. Here we go. So I'm going to play like a minute of it and then tell you why this was just like, holy shit. Like I felt, I felt like the the earth move under my feet Okay, (laughs) and had to turn it off. Okay. We still talk about the primary difference between shame and humiliation being the construct of deserving. So if I'm a teacher and I shame a student and that student self-talk is, God, I didn't deserve that. That's the meanest, rotten, most terrible teacher. I didn't deserve it. We used to say all the time that humiliation is less 
dangerous than shame because as a caregiver, it's very likely that we'll hear about it because they're not internalizing it like they would shame. If they process that as shame, God, she called me stupid. I am stupid. She's called me stupid. I am stupid. The problem is if we look on 147, this is based on the research. We define humiliation as the intensely painful feeling that we've been unjustly degraded, ridiculed, or put down, and that our identity has been demeaned or devalued. And it's similar to shame because we feel somehow flawed when we're in that emotion. But again, when we're humiliated, we don't believe we deserved it. And the new research, this is coming from Linda Hartling, who's the director of a global transdisciplinary group called Human Dignity and Humiliation Studies. They call themselves the Nurturers of Dignity. Hartling and her colleagues describe humiliation as unjustified mistreatment that violates one's dignity and diminishes one's sense of self-worth as a human being. So a collection of studies has really challenged my thinking about how detrimental and dangerous humiliation is. So oof. What did you pick up from that? And I'll tell you why this like knocked me over. Thanks to her work, you know, we've talked a lot about the difference between shame and guilt of I am wrong versus I've done something wrong. And I think this newer research, at least what I'm hearing from her is the shame is I deserved it. Like mm-hmm. I'm wrong and I deserve to be humiliated or I deserve to be shamed versus humiliation where you're experiencing that sensation of ridicule or embarrassment, you know, tenfold, but you feel as though you didn't deserve it. Like why? Yeah. It's unjustified. Why is this here? So as it relates to, as I'm really curious to hear, because I can think about all of the kind of the bevy of different circumstances that you've had in your life that have been infused with shame or humiliation, largely humiliation, I would think. So I would think having, and this is really what Brene talks about a lot with this book is having the language to define what you're feeling and what's happening for you. And that sometimes when we categorize something or have a label or have the language, it sometimes it's a relief, but sometimes it fucking knocks us on our ass. Both. It sounds like that happened to you. All right. So don't leave me hanging. I'm dying to know. Okay. Well, so, and then she went on just for context for people listening, like she went on to talk about, and you know, it's from the unlocking us. We'll put the link in the show notes, episode two of three, uh, when, when her sisters Barrett and Ashley interviewed her, she goes on to talk about a study that they did in the early two thousands. And by they it's this, uh, Linda Hartling and, and, a, and some colleagues, they studied some, some school shooters, like in the in the late 1900s, that sounds so weird to say, in the late 90s, <laughs> which is true, late 1900s. Um, turn of the century. <laughs> turn of the century. But I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming those were all boys and young men that they studied and it wasn't that big of a cohort of them. But they were talking about how that kind of profound humiliation is also closely related to suicide and homicide. Mm-hmm. It's just violence. And, and granted, these boys and young men were also bullied, which I didn't quite have that experience. And the thing that like I had to back up the podcast like 30 seconds or 45 seconds to have her read that again. And then I turned to page 147 of Alice of the Heart. And it's actually on the top of 148, if you have the print version, where it's this other scientist's definition of it. And it says unjustified mistreatment that violates one's dignity and diminishes. Yeah. Yeah. Diminishes. One sense of self-worth as a human being. And I think. I've never heard it explained like that. And I've never felt. I've never felt like anyone could describe it exactly how I was feeling it. Like when. And I think anybody who's listening who has um, not just had infidelity be a part of their life, but everybody knows about it. Right. And 
I think for, for my personal experience, the amount of people, like the amount of friends that we had and like the, the huge family. And there were so many people that we were connected to. And like, we both were born and raised in that town and like everybody knew, I mean, it's not totally true, but like so many people knew who we were and we'd been together for so long and it was just so fucking humiliating. And I told one person that it was one of our friends. Um, it was early on and I was like, I'm just, I'm so humiliated about this whole thing. And she was like, you don't need to be humiliated. He's the one that fucked up. And she, she made me wrong for it. And of course she meant well, but I never told anybody again for the longest time that I felt humiliated. I was just angry and still angry. And I think that like, it just knocked me over because a couple of things, because again, like I said, I've never had anyone describe it that way. So perfectly the word, so perfectly how I felt. And Brene, who is someone I admire so much, clearly say that essentially they were, I mean, I don't know if she said that they were wrong about it, but they just didn't look into it enough. And that she said, you know, like, I've changed my mind about how damaging humiliation can be. That was like half of what made me feel so validated because I felt like, yeah, it it, it is. And, um, you know, and she hit what back, way back when I was in training and we were learning about the differences between embarrassment, guilt, shame, and humiliation. I remember you know, learning about humiliation. And it's like the same, the way that they described it, it's like the same physical sensations as shame. It's going to feel exactly the same. The only difference is deserving. And I was like, okay. And then it wasn't really talked about at all. Like the focus is shame. The focus is guilt and humiliation Mm -hmm. and embarrassment really aren't that big of a deal. And so I have carried that for years as a trained during way facilitator, like just also feeling like trying to push it away and just be like, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like it, it, you are making this more than it needs to be. And there was something that was telling me that it wasn't. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like it just wouldn't go away. And I, if Sydney wouldn't have been in the car with me, I would have pulled over and broken down, but I didn't want her to like, <laughs> I didn't want her to have to take care of me. Right. Um, Anyway, I just, I think that that level of validation and being seen was something I don't think I've ever experienced before, Gulay. Like, I I really don't think I have. So, I don't think they know you call, we call each other Gulay. I know. <laughs> Say, well, Amy. Add a little levity there. Uh, long story, but it's an SNL reference. Um, <laughs> So you might hear a slip. It's very hard for me to call her Andrea. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey, 
So a couple of things. First off, the amount that how earth shattering it is to actually feel seen is especially you and I've been having conversations how there's no shortage of people around us who aren't capable of that. They either aren't the ears that can hear us. They're not the eyes that can see us. They're not, um, they don't have the energy that can hold where we're at. So to, so to finally feel recognized for your experience, I think is huge. And I, and I also think I'm hoping that this conversation and the, and sharing this, which is such an incredible act of vulnerability on your behalf does help heal because my guess is that you're going to have myriad of people who come out saying, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I felt too. And there's a, a couple things that I think are worth underlining here. The first is her statement around diminishes sense of self. Uh-huh. To diminish self, it's like, I, I don't know what a good metaphor is, like a statue that keeps getting kind of chipped away, chipped away until it's it's no longer recognizable. And the amount of trying to find the pieces that can help you build that statue back up again. Uh-huh. And everyone around you is going, what cracks? What are you talking about? What cracks? What pieces? What are you talking about? And the other thing that I wanted to mention too is, and I've had uh, multiple conversations about this, that maybe even you and I have, that we never, ever fucking root for our own trauma. We never do. We never want to say, I was abused. We never want to say, this was an extremely emotional issue to surmount, or I was wrong, or I, even even for myself, that this has been the first year at age 42 that I have been able to claim that I'm a survivor of religious abuse Uh because we don't want it to be that. We want to say, we want it to be light. We want to say, it's not that big of a deal. We want to say, oh, I got through it or I'm surviving. And we want to do the comparative suffering thing that Brene talks about. Like so many people have it worse. And so we belittle our experiences. And then that is compounded by other people in our life, like the friend that you had who tells you how your feeling is wrong. and. If it is painful to you, it is valid, period. Yeah. And I think compounded, it was not that long later that I had to do some continuing ed that I've been telling you about. And I'm I'm super interested in, in Dr. Gabor Matei's work. And he talks a lot about trauma. He talks about addiction too, a lot. But you know his philosophy and what he says over and over again is your trauma is not about what happened to you. It's about what happened to your body. It's about how you try to cope now. It's about how you're trying to relieve that pain if you're doing it through behaviors that don't serve you. Like that's when he talks about addiction, and it, that was helpful for me because, you know, I kept I kept thinking to myself, my self talk, and some people like if I talk about it on social media, I always get those comments, super rude <laughs> comments of like, why are you still talking about it if it happened 15 years ago? And yeah. sometimes I wonder that myself. I'm like, why? why is this still a thing for me? Why does this still matter? And it's not that he matters and it's not that the the marriage still matters. It's because of what happened inside of my body when that all occurred. And, and I think I like your metaphor about the statue and like, I see it more as it just all happened so fast too, that it felt like I was just completely erased. Right. That it just like it, I got the rug pulled out from under me and my therapist was talking about, you know, disillusionment, how, how damaging that can be, how we think things are a certain way. And, you know, we trust people and think things are going, we have this idea of our reality. And then when we find out it actually was not that at all, it was something else. It's, um, it's traumatizing. Brene goes on in that episode to talk about, and they, she talks about it in, Atlas of the Heart in that same chapter about the studies that they did about you know those boys and young men and how the humiliation coupled with bullying is um, overwhelmingly results in violence. Sure. And I my immediate thought when I heard that was like I turned that on myself. 
Well, I think that's that's the difference of like that's what's available for women mm-hmm. is you get to have self-loathing. For men, you get to take that out externally because yeah. uh, you know, that's I mean, and obviously that's a generalized statement. Yeah, and and for me, it's been helpful to connect the dots. And this is the conversation I've been having with, with, you know, the experts on my show about labels, you know, like how much do they really matter? Um, you know, is it dangerous if we spend so much time trying to find the label that fits the best? Then there's, you know, yeah. over-identification and we can spend way too much time doing that and like kind of picking apart all of our neuroses. And what I find helpful is connecting, connecting the dots as to what happened not just what happened, but how I interpreted it, because that's really yes. like the most important part, more important than what happened. And then the behaviors that I used to soothe myself. And you know that happened in um, 2006. And then I got into the relationship with the, the fake cancer guy in early 07. And then, um, and then I got pregnant with Colton. And so I wasn't drinking, but I was still very much love addicted. And um, then I met Jason and, you know, after Colton was born, really my drinking picked up. Like I remember this must've been before we met. Like I was at uh, um, a woman's house that I went to coach training with and, and she had like a sleepover with, with me and Courtney was there and, and and a handful of other women that were in our I'm in our cohort for coach training and the woman who was hosting, she was actually sober and she had a bottle of wine that she had used to cook with. And she was like doing the dishes and she called over her shoulder and she's like, does anybody want this? I'm just going to, I'm going to throw it out. And nobody else was in the room. And then it sat there on the counter. And I remember sneaking into the kitchen when nobody was looking and chugging that bottle. Whoa. Probably never told me this. I forgot about it until like it came up in my Facebook memories from, it must've been 08 that this happened. Cause I wasn't pregnant with Sydney yet, but Colton was still a baby. And um, that was like one of the handful of things that happened where I was like, maybe this isn't healthy. Right. <laughs> maybe I need to look at that, but it took me a minute to look at that. But that was, you know, the start of, of just doing whatever I could to, you know, push it down. No, I was very early in my, in my, um, my own personal development journey, but I remember feeling so fucking pissed about the whole thing and just, and still, and, and like, this is, this is my next frontier. (laughs) It's like, peace be with the next therapist that I hire because (laughs) I've got some anger to get out. And, um, you know, a lot of it is like my, my inner teenager is fucking pissed, very pissed about some things that happened. And then it's making my stomach hurt. (sighs) Well, yeah, it's so, it's so interesting to me, that correlation between the emotional self and the physical self. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that it would manifest as stomach ache, you know, Uh something physical. and. I've been grappling with this a little bit too lately because I have been feeling an extreme amount of anger. I've labeled it rage. And I think I might be using that inaccurately now that I'm reading this lovely Vade Mikam all about emotions. And I Wait, is that a different I, book or Alice of the Heart? No, this is Atlas. It's just oh, I okay. took the cover off. So I wasn't okay. um, making it gross. And I think you and I both have interviewed Dr. Valerie Rain about patriarchy stress Mm -hmm. disorder. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that not only are we navigating our own trauma and our own rage or anger about things that we've actually experienced, but we're also doing that generationally. Yeah. So all of our all of our ancestors who that wasn't an option. I mean, even emotional acuity or intelligence wasn't even an option. That wasn't a thing. And, and I, I was just watching a show with Mr. Smith and he was my husband and he was, it, it, he's so great. Cause he's become quite the feminist and he, he'll just say like, I cannot believe there was no choices for women back then. And this, we're talking, this like gladiator time period. And and I'm like, literally, this is the best time 
<laughs> this is mm-hmm. the best time. Like it's always the present moment is the most advanced. Like there's nothing. At least in the United women. States. Yeah. Right. Or the right. North That's true. That's true. That's definitely worth a caveat. The reason why I bring that up is I think that it's such a uh, common thing for us to go, what's wrong with me? Why am why can't I get over this? What are my issues? And we forget to recognize the weight of what we are actually grappling with. Not only is it a collective trauma that we're in the middle of that we've been going through for a couple of years as mm-hmm. a society, but we're also undoing centuries and generations of trauma of women who did not have the language or the freedom to actually have this or the priority to have this type of a conversation. I say that to hopefully inspire you all listening to be really generous with yourself that I, and I really believe that these younger generations, you know, starting probably with, with some of the younger millennials, Z generation alpha I think they're really going to start changing that narrative around getting support, being in your feels, you know, mm-hmm. being emo, allowing yourself to to actually have a vernacular around that. That wasn't that wasn't a thing for us. Yeah. So, but I also recognize, and I think this might be something you can speak to, of just being fucking sick of doing the work. Oh like, yeah. I no. You mean oh I'm you're talking about like this. the labor, like the the actual labor, like around the house type, like domestic t- duties. No, I'm talking about the labor of unpacking trauma, the oh, labor yeah. of, of, of doing your own work to recognize what this stuff really is and how everything in us and also in our society tells us just sweep it under the rug. Don't, don't, don't look there. I don't know about you. And I think, and I don't know if it's just because I have a, I'm, I'm much more quick to access anger, but for anybody listening who might feel this way, I get angry that I was more or less chosen, especially feeling like the only one in my family. Yeah. I'm like how I get a little bit self-righteously angry (laughs) of, of, and this is what I told you the other day. And I said, I'm, I'm tired of, of feeling like I was born a seeker in a family that does not seek or have like yeah. any desire to do that. Yeah. And like, you know, I've heard people say, and some people are joking about it. Like <laughs> the universe puts you in families where those people are your teachers and where you have the biggest lessons to learn. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> I don't, don't, yeah. don't want it. I don't want to be the one. Yeah. It, it's uh, looking out. I feel, and this isn't every day, but I have moments where I'm like, God, it seems so much easier to just be not interested and not know what you're missing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like to be okay. And I, I can't, it's kind of like a grass is greener over there type of thing. And, and again, these moments are few and far between, but I just, I wonder what that's like, because I feel like even though I entered the, I didn't enter this work until I was in like my early-ish mid-30s, I've always been interested in it, but been made fun of for it. I think I told you, like I bought um, mm-hmm. Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, like right. in the earlier mid-90s and my then boyfriend made fun of me about it and um, just wanted something bigger and like wanted to like help people and volunteered and stuff and was made fun of for it. And I also now look back at my childhood and think of things that happened that were really big moments. Like we had a family friend that passed away and like watching my parents navigate that, you know, a family member passed away, watching my, one of my parents navigate that a funeral, watching them navigate that. And I have distinct memories of that and not just remembering, but remembering how I felt and remembering that um, I was so hungry for just connection. And like, can we talk about this, even though it scares me and I'm not sure what this is. Can you just put your arms around me? And like, can we move through this together as a family? And so I can like feel safe. And, um, and I never got that. And I think that, you know, I developed coping mechanisms as I got older to, um, just to survive and they have been difficult and challenging to knock down. And I drank too, you know, when I was codependent and I was a love addict and had an eating disorder, all in an effort to find relief from that pain. And it worked until it didn't. And then when it all fell down, 
I think it was like a year or two into my sobriety where I was like, holy shit, the amount of work I have to do mm-hmm. will never end. Right. It's almost like the pain of the addiction becomes more painful than the stuff you have to work through. And that's sort of the the line. Call that you the tipping to- point. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. It's the line you tow for the longest time. Like, can I keep this coping mechanism under control enough? But that's not typically how addiction works, you know? Some and people I, stay I, in that place for a long time. My heart goes out to them. That's rough. I don't, I don't feel, uh, uh, I don't have that same response of being angry about being the one in the family. I feel grateful. I feel yeah. fucking grateful. I feel like I feel both this, of those things. It's such a light worker bullshit thing to say, but I feel like I am so grateful to be walking in the light and to choose the light instead of the dark. And and I, you know, I I've had some really amazing conversations with people in my family, but I think one of the big differences that I'm noticing just in this conversation is there was a lot of safety in my family. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of emotional safety in my family. And although I still feel like a lot of the, the dogma and the religious abuse is what I'm grappling with now and the trauma that I'm grappling with now, I don't, I really can separate how abusive that rhetoric is and then the intention and the hearts of where my parents were at. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they genuinely, really, truly thought everything was with so much love. Um, I think a lot of the stuff with purity culture and, you know, just the whole idea that you need saving and all of that, I think is incredibly detrimental to someone's well-being. But I never, I never was shamed for expressing my emotions. That is still even though I do have, you know, a litany of issues that I'm working through, that is one of the things that I'm super, super grateful for with my parents and my my dad in particular, because I think that's pretty much unheard of, especially for Gen Xers raised by boomers. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not something we're taught. It's unusual. Yeah. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that this book is is so incredible. Just and I've you know I've been reading her work for since '09, and always find 
something useful in all of them. But I'll tell you what, like, I can't even put into words how validating it felt to have her. And, you know, and it's like kudos to her for like continuing to do the research right. on these fields. Cause I mean, Brene is famous enough where she could be like, all right, you know, like <laughs> I'm done, but that's right. not how science works. You know, and we're seeing this now with the science within immunology and virology in the pandemic and, and people, scientists learn more things and they change their mind and things change. And um, I mean, even the science is different when I went to college in the mid two thousands to get my degree in exercise physiology, like a lot of the research is showing similar things, but a lot of it's different. And so I'm grateful to her and her team for continuing to look at the research it's going to be really interesting what happens as the decades go by. I I wonder, I mean, these are the things I think about as I lay in bed trying to fall asleep with my middle-aged insomnia and my existential crisis. Like, <laughs> I, I wonder if what we're experiencing now, and I, I can only speak for culturally and socially here in the US, this sort of rumbling, if you will, and mm-hmm. discomfort and real fighting that we're seeing within people. I wonder if this is the result of generations and generations and generations of trauma. Like absolutely coming up like a volcano, like, you know, well, I think Yosemite or what is it? Old yeller? No, old faithful, (laughs) old faithful. (laughs) Old yeller is a dog. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course it is. I absolutely think that's what this is. And I also think we've compounded it with technology, which, which is quite menacing because we have, we have vehicles for violence that we didn't have before. Right. So if we're talking about how humiliation, this idea of I'm being made wrong and I don't deserve it, which pretty much everybody is kind of feeling an element of that, some degree of that. And so let me take this to social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now we have access to weaponry that we did not have access to in the past. So there's all of these additional elevated ways in which not only are we able to be violent, but we're also able to express it in a way. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of like the way that that has catapulted just in the last handful of years, where we can take out that aggression, our stances, our thoughts, our opinions in a multitude of different places, and by and large, not really have a, a huge amount of repercussion there because we're not actually engaging face-to-face and seeing seeing the results of what we're saying to people, yeah. right? And so all of that stuff really scares me. But I also think that there's ways in which, especially technology, has given us the opportunity to connect together. In fact, I definitely credit TikTok as being one of the biggest influences for me in the religious deconstruction movement. There's movements that are happening around fat phobia or ableism or racism or all of these different things that have also been a dormant message or slow to sort of a slow burn of getting out there. So I think it's, I see pluses and minuses of it, like where I'm, I get excited for some of the younger generations that they're just not going to tolerate bullshit. And then I see some other sides of that that are like doubling down on some really archaic antiquated notions about how we should behave. In fact, there was, have you read the portion in Atlas about cognitive dissonance? No, I, I, maybe I have, but I don't remember. It's so interesting. She, she references another book. So this was not necessarily Brene's specific research, but this other book that chronicled a doomsday cult and this gentleman, and I would have to look up his name and we can throw that in later if we need to, but he predicted that, okay, the people who are super invested in this message, when that doomsday comes, that date comes, I think it was December 21st in the fifties, somewhere in the fifties, when that date comes and the rapture doesn't happen, the people who are highly, highly invested in this will actually double down once they've received 
the information that you are wrong, mm-hmm. they can't hold that in their mind. Those two competing thoughts of I'm wrong and I believe this thing. So how the fuck can I make sense of that? And he said, they will double down. The people who are less invested in this cult will use that as a sign of like, okay, here we've been given literal proof that this isn't going to happen. And then they'll they'll leave the cult. So, and, and at the time, that sort of fatidic uh, prophecy was kind of unheard of in the research, right? It was unheard of that once presented with the information that people would actually deny it kind of like results of an election. Mm-hmm. And and he was absolutely right because those people then said, oh, we've been spared. God has actually decided to spare us because we've been so faithful. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the, the way in which we start to go, I cannot possibly be wrong. So let me double down on all of this stuff. And she uses references too of like smoking when you know that you shouldn't be smoking, but then uh, you also still want to smoke and how you're holding those two things. So you have to make it make sense, make it make sense. Yeah. So it's like, well, I do this because I don't want to pick up another bad habit or I don't want to gain weight or I don't, you know, whatever other bullshit narrative. Yeah. I agree with you. I think it's, I, I think I even told you, I think this is the most important book of our generation. One of them. Yeah. And when I think about things that have happened in our culture, whether it was before I was born or, or that I've seen lately, the pendulum seems to swing like completely the other direction before it evens out. And my hope is that (laughs) it evens out soon. I, I get a little nervous about, you know, the future for my children and things like that, but I'm, I'm happy that, and and when I say swinging the other way, I think, I think there is a lot of over-identification happening. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, people spend a lot of time and it's a, it's a tricky balance, a lot of time trying to label themselves and, and just defending their poor behavior by saying like, well, I'm this and well, I have anxiety disorder. And it's like, yes, that, that that's true. And, you know, what are you going to do about it now? Mm-hmm. But um, one of the other points I wanted to make is if people have been listening to the show for a while, first of all, thank you. And second of all, I've talked about all the different therapists I have and, you know, starting with Christine, who was my first therapist and I saw her on and off for probably 20 years. And then I've had a a couple therapists here and there that I didn't see for very long that, that weren't that helpful, but I had an EMDR therapist and she was, that was pretty helpful. And then, you know, I worked with um, Jessica Clark on on the the sex stuff and worked with Helen, um, my trauma therapist from last year. And I think, I think the thing I want to say is one of the mistakes that I have made, I don't know if I've ever articulated this before, but I realized this when I can't remember who asked me, I don't know if it was Helen Oh, I think it was when I went to the ADHD specialist and she said, and I'm sure Helen asked me this too. And she said, what do you want to have happen? Right. Like, what do you, and we do this in coaching. Like <laughs> you say like, how do you want to be different? Like part of it is expectation management. Right. We want to know like, all right, do you have expectations that are just completely unrealistic? Or is that something that you maybe need to see a therapist for or something else? And I was like, oh, I, I want to be cured. Like I want to mm-hmm. be totally better. I I want a fucking exorcism. Yeah. Can you can you serve that up? Because I will give you all my money if you can get this trauma out of my motherfucking body. Like I am ready to not have it anymore. And I I that's one of the expectations I think that I had to to check for myself. And and what the conclusion that I've come to is that all the therapists that I've seen have helped me like stepping stones, like Mm -hmm. as like a kind of board of directors that have helped me get to this place. And I don't think it's any accident that when we are ready to hear something that we truly hear it. And I think that that's why, you know, that message hit me so hard when on Brene's podcast, when she was talking to Barrett and Ashley and some of the, the experts that I've had on my show have, have pointed me into directions that were so incredibly helpful. And my point is at this stage, I think I've finally settled in, and I've always known this like on a like a surface level, but I think I've finally settled into this truly is 
like a one day at a time, one layer of the onion of being healed at a time. And I will continue to have people in my life who are, you know, holding up a mirror to me and the the parts about myself that I don't particularly love. They are challenging me in ways that I have to really show up and either execute some boundaries or learn to have hard but important conversations. Mm -hmm. There's going to be people that hurt me. There's going to be people that I hurt. Mm -hmm. And, And it's just, it's an ongoing process. And, you know, we never arrive. It also helps me to never put people on pedestals. I've never really been that type of person. I I think I read somewhere that Enneagram eights don't do that. But mm. what I tend to do is I I feel like people, there are certain people who have parts of their life really well put together. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I know they're human and yeah. I know they're like not just one dimensional. But I'm, I sometimes make up, I'm like, well, they've got their career on lockdown or their relationships are just like not flawed at any, at at anything. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. No, it's not. It's not at all. But again, it's, you know, we don't, we don't go around sharing our pain. Typically we share. Except me. (laughs) No, I mean, like gets in a tent and calls her best friend and records it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's that great quote about, you know, comparing your behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. Yeah. And, and we do have those moments, I think of transparency where we say, Hey, I'm going through something tough, but I could also see somebody like on the outside looking in being like, Oh my gosh, she's, she is so successful. She's verified on (laughs) Instagram. Instagram. She has three books that have been in all these different languages. She does all these speaking gigs, you know, she's got this successful podcast, right? And we forget that, that we're so multifaceted and there's so many things that we're going through and everybody has shit. In fact, it was recently that I, I sort of had this epiphany. I don't know why this was an epiphany, but I've been working through some of this stuff around purity culture. And I was like, I don't know one woman in my life who has a thriving, no issues sex life, not fucking one, but who the fuck talks about that? Like, (laughs) nobody's like, Hey, yo, I have trouble with orgasm or, Hey, I've got some shit happening, you know, or my partner's addicted to porn or blah, blah. Like nobody Nobody really talks about some of those, those things that we're, we're unpacking kind of behind the scenes, but we're all, we all have our shit, right? Mm -hmm. We all have our shit and we're never fucking done. That's one of the things that's been really helpful for me in listening to Brene and just really sobering for me is that she constantly references her therapist. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. if our lady Brene still (laughs) sees a therapist, our lady of love and light <laughs> be money. If be money still sees a therapist, I call her my fairy godmother. <laughs> then, it, and, and I've said this so many times with my classes and students, and I do think that there's almost, and this might be even for you too. There's an element of grief in that. Oh yeah. Like when you feel like I just need to find the right answer. It's going to be the right program. It's going to be the right book I read. It's going to be the right therapist. And then I will be healed. I will be fixed. I will be relieved of this pain forever. And it will Mm -hmm. be tidy and it won't ever surface again. It won't ever get triggered by new trauma. And then we have people like you and I who will tell them like, listen, it's not that you are going to be void of pain. It's going to be that you engage with pain in a different, more powerful way. You're not going to be void of hardship. We're going to engage with hardship in a more powerful way. And that concept of you never actually arrive warrants grieving Mm -hmm. because our society is like tidy it up, right? We need fast food. We need fast remedies. We need, give me a pill that I can be fine with. You know, we don't like the idea that this is something that that is a lifelong process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for a little while there, I was, I was looking for that too. And it was, it, 
it comes and goes, I think, how accepting I am of that. Like I understand it, but I push back on it sometimes. One of the another reason I encourage people to go listen to that three-part series is they reference they're being pretty private about it. I have a feeling something is going on with one of their parents as far as like, you know, like aging or like either putting them in a home or they're sick or something like that. And I appreciate because they had, I think it was the second, or it was maybe the third episode of the three, they had people write in with their questions. And one of the people said, do you still find yourself? The question more or less was when you all get together, like as a family, you know, Brene and her sisters, and they, they also have a brother. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, her, her mom and dad, their mom and dad, do you find yourself falling into the roles you had when you were kids? Like when you all lived together sure. and, and kind of like, all of your coping mechanisms go out the window and they all immediately said yes. Yeah. And I was like, thank God, because my family yeah. does that too. <laughs> I don't like it. I think we naturally kind of revert back to whatever those roles were. And and it's helpful for me to hear to hear her talk about that too. I think there's also this notion that once you know the tool or once you've learned the thing about yourself, that you're magically going to make all the right solutions and choices going forward. Mm -hmm. That, you know, for myself, uh, that I am, I beat myself up the most when I don't speak up for myself in the way that I teach, because that's my main Mm -hmm. focus in my work is communication. So, that's what I have to really check myself with of like, no, you're still learning how to put all of these things into play. And yes, I've gotten a shit ton better, but it doesn't mean that I'm done learning in that arena at all. Yeah. It keeps me honest though. That's for f- fuck sure. Like I hold myself to a higher standard and there's been times I've shared with you where I've gone, I cannot have this career where I talk about speaking up and then not do it and then mm-hmm. let be complicit to something that I don't agree with. But God damn, it's fucking exhausting. Sometimes it's just so fucking exhausting to do the work. Mm-hmm. I'm done talking. So hopefully this is encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done talking. So go out there and do the tough shit. <laughs> Good luck with life. <laughs> Never done. I hope you enjoy. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite, like, encouraging statement. Good luck with life. <laughs> Good luck with life. Are we going to do it? Are, are we done? Are we still so. talking? I think so. Okay. I'm just going to end. Thanks. You're such a good friend. Likewise. Okay. Bye. Hi there. Swing back by to say one more thing. You know how I'm always giving advice over here on the show and on social media. And a couple of those things is that I'm always telling you to ask for what you want, be clear about it, and also ask for help. So I am taking a dose of my own medicine and I'm going to do that right now. It would be the absolute best and mean the world to me if you reviewed and subscribed to this show, Make Some Noise Podcast, on whatever podcast platform of your choice. And even more importantly, It would matter so much if you shared this show. Sharing the show is one of the few ways the podcast can grow, and that also gives more women an opportunity to make some noise in their lives. You can do that by taking a screenshot when you're listening on your phone and sharing it in your Instagram or Facebook stories. If you're on Instagram, you can tag me at HeyAndreaOwen, and I try my best to always re-share those and give you a quick thank you DM. And also, you can tell your friends and family about it. Tell them what you learned. Tell them a really awesome guest that you found on the show that you started following. Whatever it is, I appreciate so much you sharing about this show. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, 
is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 